Welcome back. Trojan Talk Podcast. I am Ryan Young, BubbleshirtTrojanSports.com. And we are going to get right into the show today because we have a good one. We have three guests, full show. We'll cover all of it in those three segments, so no need for me to say anything more up top other than to introduce the show to you. It's going to be my weekly co-pilot, the former USC quarterback, OurTrojanSports.com analyst, five years running, Max Brown kicks us off talking about Lincoln Riley's outspoken comments about the perceptions of the USC defense this week. Some other takeaways from last weekend, a Heisman race breakdown, and some thoughts on Notre Dame. And, and he dissects that funky two-point conversion play that USC used to win the game last week, like only Max can. Then we bring on Tyler James, publisher of InsideIndieSports.com, our rival's Notre Dame site, to break down the Fighting Irish for us as USC heads to South Bend, as I head to South Bend for this big-time showdown between the number 10 Trojans and the number 21 Fighting Irish. Tyler James breaks it all down from the other side. Great perspective, good segment. And then we close it with the LA Times' Ryan Karchi, who had a great story this week on Lincoln Riley, Taking a look at Riley's mindset as he turns 40 after a tough year where he lost two of his closest friends and how he looks at the rest of his football coaching career. Great story. I encourage you all to read it in full, but we will cover the highlights on here in the final segment. That is our show. That's the podcast. Let's get you going. Okay, as we do almost every week, bringing back on the show our resident Trojansports.com analyst, the former quarterback, Max Brown. Max, how's it going? Good to be here. Doing well, Ryan. How are you? We're good. We're good. We're going we're gonna to cram a lot into a shorter segment this week because we have a few uh, different segments on the show today. But have to get your thoughts on the game from last week. Have to get your thoughts on the matchup with Notre Dame. And have to get your thoughts on Lincoln Riley's very uh, pointed, pointed comments about misperceptions about his defense, which we'll get into in a bit. Let's just start, Max, with your overall reactions coming off of that 43-41 triple overtime win over Arizona. Not the game that anyone was expecting, I don't think, from that matchup. What did you walk away from the Coliseum feeling Saturday night? Yeah, not the game that we were expecting, but I know, uh, I believe both of us had Arizona to cover. I know I, know I had Arizona yeah. to cover, which, which kind of spoke to a little bit of the uncertainty of USC's defense, especially going into that game. And then for me, I've been saying this all 2023, just even outside of USC. I thought Arizona would sneak up on someone this year, whether it was Washington, whether it was USC. Um, and then they have a, a gauntlet left with, with Utah and whatnot. And, um, I wasn't just saying that just, uh, just cause I think that's an offense that has a lot of firepower relative to maybe their per- the perception of where, where Arizona's at. And, yeah, they jumped out on us. Um, I, I don't. Th- I didn't think that it would be USC would be the one that would get the scare, and you know the team that really should have lost that game. But I mean, that's uh, that, that's obviously what happened. I think uh, big picture defense is obviously a concern, which I know we'll get into. And I think the concern lies for me more so in just that you know you walk away from Arizona State thinking, okay, that's the wake up call. Then you walk away from Colorado saying, all right, they have what many people believe to be an NFL quarterback and maybe there was some emotional letdown as, as, as uh, in, in the second half there and you kind of give them a pass there. But then now it's really three weeks in a row where 
you're giving them some level of, of, of pass. And, you know, is the defense absolutely atrocious? No. But if the expectation is college football playoff, if the expectation is to win the Pac-12, that's not going to get it done. Um, that's just that's just the reality of, 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 of where things are at. Um, but I will say this, and I think both things can exist. I think you can be frustrated with the lack of defensive improvement, but I also think that you can acknowledge that that is a game that USC loses over the, really the past decade, really over the past four head coaches that we've had. That's a game that USC would have lost, where you get jumped out on early, right? That's Arizona Super Bowl, a lot of guys coming back home. And Lincoln talked about it with us on Monday of the emotional roller coaster of getting jumped out on and staying, staying, uh, staying the course, coming back, but then getting punched in the, in the in the mouth again in the second half a little bit, especially as you know Arizona wouldn't go away and to continue to stay the course and find a way to win. Obviously, Caleb uh, Williams is a is a huge reason or the reason why that was able to happen. But I do think that is a bright spot that that was a game that when you did not have your best stuff. This is not just coach speak. This is just real football speak. When you did not have your best stuff, you still found a way to win the game because um, I don't believe that would have happened uh, the past decade. It's a great point. And I made the point on the message board this week that I do think some perspective is being lost because at the end of the day, this is a 6-0 team, top 10 team in the country, and the fan base is just ill right now. Like, nobody's happy. It's just... Uh, rampant discontent about everything. People are questioning Lincoln Riley this week now, and and does he have what it takes to be a, a championship coach? And obviously the, the Grinch talk and everything. And my goodness, less than two years ago, they're in the midst of a four and eight season, capping the half decade stretch of total irrelevance. And so uh, it's you know that's the beauty of college football is that fans are are rabid and expectations are always high and. Perspective is not always uh, prevalent, but it, it is it is crazy where we're at now. We're six and zero, and and uh, people are just uh, beside themselves and apoplectic over this team. Yeah, no, I think and uh, Matt Leinert's comments after the game. I think it was Saturday night. He uh, on on TikTok or social media. He, I think he he said it well in that you know both can exist. You can be frustrated with where the defense is at. But you also can celebrate the fact that this team is 6-0 and and this team has everything to play for and this team is way better than they were at three, where they were at three years ago. And you can celebrate the fact that this is a huge Notre Dame game. I think, you know, this widespread just um, – and I see it in my USC group chat, group chats too – this widespread just like negativity, doom and gloom, we're so bad, this is never going to happen. Like that's just a terrible way to be a fan. And, I mean, I'm sure there's some people that listen to that and it's like, oh, Max, come on, the standard's the standard, don't be soft. That's just ridiculous, though. And I think I do have exposure to other fan bases just by way of the gigs that I have. And there are elite fan bases that don't have this fandom where it's, hey, if things aren't perfect, that it's just absolute doom and gloom. Um, I just, I don't know, I challenge listeners to, to get out of that mindset, one, because you know, look where we were at five years ago, seven years ago. And then two, Caleb Williams is the best college football player that I've ever covered. And it would be a bummer to have that energy in a year like this where, you know, I, we have been blessed with the quarterback position at USC. But to me, Caleb's from the college ranks, you know, as good, if not better than, than all of them. And so 
Don't miss this window. Don't miss this two-month stretch. Don't miss the road trips. Don't miss the unbelievable games that USC has ahead. Absolutely. Very well said. Um, speaking of Caleb, he put the team on his back, obviously, last Saturday and, and uh, willed them through that uh, unexpected challenge or uh, unexpected the way the game played out. But let's go back to the beginning of the game. USC's down 17 nothing. Obviously, a lot of that was due to the defense, which gave up over 200 yards in the first three Arizona drives. But what did you see early from the, the offense that was just not clicking? And um, I, We had this conversation on the message board, and, and I said, I'm, I'm not going to read anything into it or panic because they scored on the first drive of every other, other game this season, and every team is, uh, is, is allowed or, or due to be off for a few uh, stretches. But uh, what stood out to you just about that start last week? Yeah, I think Arizona brought a similar game plan to the park that they brought to Washington in that it's, you know, um, we're gonna we're not going to we're not gonna be super aggressive defensively. We're not going to be blitzing and putting guys man coverage and on an island and things like that. And they they played relatively soft. And when you play relatively soft, what happens is if USC doesn't punish you in the run game, or if USC takes turns making mistakes, whether it's a blitz pickup thing, whether it's just a gap assignment, whether it's whatever a drop pass or miss throw, whatever. That becomes really difficult when you get into third and long, second and long, because that plays right into the hand of Arizona that's playing that softer defense, and so those holes down the field just won't be there as much. I just thought, big picture, USC wasn't sharp, um, and they they weren't punishing Arizona early on for some of those lighter packages that they had. And then again, if you don't punish them on first or second down, then you get to third down, and that plays right into the hand of Arizona rolling out there seven dbs six dbs like that's the whole that's that's their that's their whole mindset um so i think we just came out flat i think a lot of that's just a just a uh mentality thing um with arizona digging in for their biggest game of the season and then usc you know you you lose you don't start fast on those first two possessions like you know anyone that's been a part of football like sometimes that just happens the standard's so high at uh usc offensively but if you don't execute on first and second down, then you're behind the sticks on third down, or, or, or even if it's just third and six, at that point, maybe Arizona can contest you, and they found a way to get off the field. So, to me, I agree with you what you said. It's not a, a, a cause for, for panic, per se, but I do think it's, oh, wow, this USC offense is human, and oh, oh wow, we just it's unrealistic to expect USC to score every single play, but credit Arizona for having a, a, a little bit of a unique scheme that I think forced USC to think a, a, a tad more, a bit more, and when you're thinking a, tad, a, a bit more, I think it got them out of their uh, out of their responsibilities, and um, you, you weren't able to capitalize in the first uh, first quarter offensively for USC. For sure. Well, we're not going to belabor the defensive end of things this week because we had a long discussion about that last week on the podcast. If you didn't listen to that, you can go back, and most of those thoughts still hold up pretty strongly. And ultimately, the, the the truth of this defense will be told over these next handful of weeks as the schedule ratchets up. Uh, obviously, starting this week at Notre Dame, but with a uh, spate of ranked opponents ahead. But I do want to get into some comments uh, over the last week, and I, I may have uh, started some dominoes uh, after the game Saturday, unintentionally, I might add, when we were near the end of the press conference after the game and nobody had asked Lincoln about the defense, which surprised me. So I thought it should be asked and I could not have asked a more uh, non-leading open-ended 
unaggressive question. I said, I know we asked you every week, but what was your assessment of the defense and where it is halfway through the season? As I said that, Ryan sparked it. <laughs> <laughs> the harmless spark that lit a forest fire. As I finished that question, Caleb Williams rolls his eyes back, tilts his head backwards and then down, and it's just, you can tell, just kind of fuming and waiting for his chance to chime in, even though the question was to, was to Riley. So, so Riley answers it, and then Caleb interjects and says, we wouldn't have won that game without the defense. We were down 17 nothing. so this, this whole defensive thing our brothers, the score wouldn't be 43-41 without them. So put it simply that way. Uh, you could tell he was just exasperated with the dialogue that's been mounting each week about the defense and Grinch. I agree the score wouldn't be 43-41 without the defense, but I think we feel uh, that way for different reasons. So Tuesday after practice, Riley was asked about Caleb's response to that question, which then set Lincoln off with a, a long answer. Um, I'll try and paraphrase as much as possible, but he said, uh, Caleb was exactly right. That's what we've been trying to say. We're not hiding from the areas that we've got to continue to make improvement, and there certainly are some. But this is a much improved unit. There's no question about it. This is a unit that I think when you talk about top-end potential, has a chance to really grow and get better fast given some of the youth, some of the new people, some of the quality depth that we have, some of the injuries we've had to uh, endure that prevent any guys from being able to continue to get snaps. But there are a lot of good things happening on this defense, man. You don't sit there and do what we're doing in TFLs, do what we're doing in sacks. Like, there's so many great things. Then we get to the, the, the meat of the quote. He goes, but here's the deal. A lot of people in the media had their mind made up that the first second there was any adversity this year, it was like, oh, my God, they should have done this. They should have made this change and blah, blah, blah. And it's not true. Like, listen, you're going to go through a whole year. You're going to have a tough game. You're going to have a tough quarter. Do you respond do you show continued growth, et cetera, et cetera. So you could just tell that this, uh, all this outside chatter about the defense, about Grinch, about whether Riley should have made a move after last season has just been boiling to the surface uh, inside some of these guys, uh, Caleb and Lincoln, uh, clearly. And it's starting to come out. What did you make of, the, of Lincoln going on the aggressive this week, going on the offensive about his defense? Yeah, I even felt that way or I felt some type of way um, Monday night after our Trojans live show. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is I don't know if I've ever been a part of USC where there was a consensus, consensus narrative from the outside, in this case the, the defense not being good or the defense needing to improve, and then a what seems to be a consensus narrative on the inside yep. that – disagrees with that take and I know during the Clay Helton eras you know sometimes fans felt like they were getting you know sold certain things of um hey this isn't great but hey guys you know we're actually doing this and I felt like that temperament from Helton was was just different I think Helton was under a much more but much greater hot seat than Lincoln Riley is and I think fans realize that Lincoln's much more of a I think a true straight shooter he's willing to you know own the own the mistakes and own where things need to get better. And so it's unique that in this scenario, he's really digging in and, you know, in some, in some ways getting fiery about it too, which I just, one, haven't seen that with a Lincoln, but I really haven't seen that within any of the recent coaches at USC of, again, a narrative on the inside that seems to be vastly different than the narrative on the outside. Usually they, those align. And so I think on one hand, I'm sitting there thinking, 
I don't think Lincoln's lying to us. I don't think Lincoln's genuinely trying to sell us something. I, I do think there's something to be said about he's trying to stay positive and trying to show belief in those guys. And I do think there's a large portion of that. But, he, I mean, he said comments to us on Monday of, you know, a couple of those early touchdowns, you have, like, literally the best defensive call and someone's, like, out of place, which, again, there's no excuse for that. But I also think as a coach I can't blame him for sitting there thinking, well, hey, like, you know, that we're, we're, we're right there. Like, it's not like it's a talent deficiency like we may have seen last year. So I can at least see where he's coming from. But at the end of the day, like we said in the first question, it has been – it has been three games in a row now where you don't walk away. You, you don't walk away feeling great about the defense, period. And with USC and the added depth and the added talent, that shouldn't be the case. And it happens, you know, a game here or a game there or against a good offense, things like that. But to have this same feeling three weeks in a row, I think the fans are justified. The media is justified for, for asking that question and feeling that type of way. And I do think the initial comment by Lincoln of, um, hey, the media had its mind made up kind of thing. Uh, I do think, I mean, I, I can't blame him for saying that. I think from Lincoln's seat, he's sitting there saying, guys, we're 6-0 and with the leading Heisman Trophy candidate, yet it feels like, you know, the biggest elephant in the room is, is, is the defense, which, again, is the standard. I get it, all that stuff. But I also get from his perspective of saying, man, we're winning ball games. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, your job's to win. We're 6 0, everything ahead of us. Like, why does this have to be the overwhelming energy coming off the stadium? Which I do empathize with that, especially being in, having been in that locker room. I do think that's unique to USC. And sure, other big fan bases have, have some of that. I'm not, not naive to that. But I also can tell you that, you know, that's not the temperament at an Oregon or a Washington, which, again, I know that's not USC. But those are, you know, those are programs that are that are that are big time programs. That um, it's just a different different energy there that I think uh, Lincoln's frustrated with, and uh, I think that's uh, that's a big reason why he's uh, bubbling to the surface like that. I agree on a few points. Uh, a, he's not wrong in that most people made up their minds on Grinch in this defense last year. I, I was one of the few people that came into the season open minded and. Um, outspoken about being open-minded and uh, neutral was the term I've, I had used uh, until I, I dropped that last week. <laughs> but most people came in already having believed that they had made a mistake in bringing Grinch back and that there was just no way it was going to work out. And that, yes, at the first signs of any kind of um, struggle, turmoil, etc., it was all going to come out. So he's right about that. That said, I don't know that those people are wrong either. And uh, to your point, I do believe that he sincerely believes what he says about the defense and and the, the progress he sees and, and the confidence he has. I don't think he's trying to sell anything. I think he truly believes that. I think the players believe it. But like he told you on Trojans Live, the problem, I think, is that they see everything through the lens of uh, what – can ideally happen with this group and we never get the ideal version. So the play call play calls may be uh, brilliant and spot on and perfect and the players just aren't executing, but that's been the same narrative for the last year and a half. We heard that all last season and well, they're just not executing. Like the guys are, we have them prepared for the right plays, but they're in the wrong spots. 
if that's the storyline every week, then ultimately that's just who you are as a defense. Uh, and this is stuff we covered last week, so I won't get too deep into it. But uh, to your other point, it is a fascinating chasm that I've never seen before where the outside is so dug in in one direction and those inside the program are so dug in in the opposite direction. Everyone involved truly believes and sincerely believes the way they feel. And it's just a, it's a really interesting contrast of, of uh, perspectives on, on what's happening here. And we'll find out in the next few weeks uh, who's right and who's wrong because ultimately the, the results are the results. And if they go through the rest of this season and they aren't a good defense, they're presently ranked in the hundreds again in terms of uh, yards allowed, uh, that's where it stays, then, then there's, there, there's nothing more to say about it. it. It is what it is. If they come out here and the defense is a massive factor in these big games ahead, then all the credit to, to Riley and Grinch and everyone who, who saw what the rest of us didn't see. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, two little quick follow-ups there, too. I think, one, you can sense that this underdog, us-against-the-world mentality is is, is brewing a little bit, especially with Caleb's temperament after the presser and, um, you know, Lincoln getting fiery, too. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out, especially on the road versus South Bend. I think there's a world where that's really healthy and that can invigorate the defense where it is. Everyone's counting us out, and maybe there's an added edge, especially going into games where you're not going to be huge favorites. And, to shoot and some games are going to be going to be underdogs uh that'll be interesting to see the one thing i think they are overselling though is everyone was just trying so hard to make it out to be that the defense was the star of this game and we won this game because of the defense and and that i do think was a little bit of convenient compartmentalizing and, and trying to force a, a counter narrative because again the fact remains yeah, the offense started slow, but they were down 17 nothing because the defense gave up over 200 yards in the first quarter and several minutes. Uh, it got better. Jacoby Covington's interception definitely turned the tables, was a huge swing, got the offense in position for its first score. Defense made a few stops. But as soon as USC got the slightest bit of comfort and got up 28-20, the defense immediately folded like a tent with a 75-play touchdown or 75-yard touchdown drive to tie it up. In overtime, uh, they had no answers aside from the very clutch two-point conversion denials. But in terms of the the actual overtime drives in the first two overtimes, they couldn't stop Arizona then either. So I, I don't know that I want to build a statue to the defense outside the Coliseum for the performance last Saturday. They were clearly trying to sell that narrative to to kind of counter what everyone else is saying, and it's. Uh, Again, just a very interesting situation. Uh, I would say that Caleb Williams won that game for them. And even though his stats weren't what they normally are, he finishes with a season-low 219 passing yards, 14 of 25, one touchdown, no picks, uh, 41 rushing yards, and three touchdowns. I think the stats won't show it, but the way he put the team on his back, the tough touchdowns he got, the final two-point conversion – I thought that performance should have helped his Heisman campaign personally. But as we go into this week, he is now second in the uh, on the odds list from the Vegas odds makers at plus 225 for the Heisman, while Michael Penix Jr. from Washington is the favorite at plus 200. 
Stat-wise, Caleb, 1,822 yards passing, 22 touchdowns, one pick, six rushing touchdowns. So 28 total touchdowns. Penix, 1,999 passing yards, 16 touchdowns, two picks. Max, how do you handicap the Heisman race at this point? Yeah, hearing that makes you sound like it's uh, that they view just Washington as a as a better team than uh, yeah. than USC. I still have Caleb as the favorite. Um, I just think he's that special and that dynamic, and I could see a world where some of Michael Penix's later games get a little bit a uh, little bit uh, muddier, so to speak. But big picture, I do think that the four game stretch of uh, UW Oregon this weekend, uh, UW USC November fourth the USC-Oregon game, and then the conference championship. Like, that four-game stretch could very well decide the Heisman between Bo Nix, Michael Penix, and Caleb Williams. And to me, it's Caleb Williams and Michael Penix, 1A, 1B, um, at the top. And I don't put Bo in that conversation, but don't get it twisted. If Bo goes out there and beats Washington this weekend and has a great game, I think he's right there in the middle of the conversation. And then you look around the rest of the conference and – I know, or I mean, the rest of the country, and Quinn, U- Quinn Ewers' his name was out there, the Texas quarterback. Obviously, they lost. Jordan Travis's name's out there with Florida State, who's undefeated. I think he's a very much a viable viable option there. There's J.J. McCarthy at uh, at Michigan, but there's just not a ton of names outside of the, uh, the Pac-12. So definitely view it as Caleb Williams, Michael Penix, 1A, 1B, and – Shoot, hopefully both those teams go into that November 4th matchup in the Coliseum. And if they both play well, I could very well see whoever ends up winning that game ultimately uh, ultimately winning the Heisman. Yeah, that'd be great drama. Let's, let's definitely hope for that. Final thoughts on the game, Max. We're going to do your favorite play call uh, from the week. And with, I think I know what it is. It's going to be that, that game-winning two-point conversion in the third overtime, right? It's going to be the game-winning uh, two-point conversion. Yeah, I asked uh, Lincoln about it on uh, Trojans Live, and I, I wanted to get to the root of, you know, where does that play call come from? Because obviously it was extremely unique. We had almost every offensive lineman lined up to the far left, like a swinging gate point after uh, point after attempt. Uh, but then you have Caleb and two receivers to the right, and I mean, I think it makes a ton of sense. Uh, or a couple things I love. So one, they have the two receivers to the right, and they have a motion. Co- by the running back coming from right to left that then pins whoever that rusher is from a pass protection standpoint, which that is great design because you know you're going to roll out right with Caleb's legs, which one is just a great option because you if, if no one takes him, he can just run in. Uh, it was a little bit harder in the Arizona game, but uh, that's obviously what we saw happen. Two, you're able to have protection with the running back uh, with, with run out right. And then at that point, there's just so much grass, especially when you're on either middle or the left hash. There's so much grass for Caleb to make a play and then the two receivers to make a play that are rolling there with them. That's just so hard to defend as a, uh, as a secondary player. Like, it's one thing if you have a pass rush that's helping you out, but presumably that pass rush would not exist now because all the uh, defensive linemen – are over there to the left with the offensive linemen. And so I just think there's so many creative wrinkles you can do off of it. Um, Lincoln told us that it sounded like both receivers on the right-hand side like tripped over each other, so they were not uh, yeah. not viable options. But there's just so much creativity you can do there. I would not be surprised if they get in another two-point two point scenario of them going back to that formation and doing just another another creative wrinkle there. I just 
I think it frees guys up. And the analogy I used for Lincoln was it felt like an isolation play in basketball where everyone clears out and you put the ball in your best player's hands and it's go to work. And I feel like we say that uh, frequently now with Caleb Williams, but especially on that two-point play where, hey, take all the defensive linemen, all the offensive linemen, put them over there, don't worry about that, give me two receivers, and let's just go play three-on-three, so to speak. That's what it was. And it's going to be super hard to uh, mm-hmm. to stop Caleb when he can both run and pass that scenario. Yep, that, that was truly Lincoln Riley getting deep into his lab of cre- creativity there. Good stuff. Let's close by talking about the matchup real quick. Now, we will have uh, Tyler James from our Rivals Never Dame side on to go deeper into the Fighting Irish, but got to get your thoughts, Max. They're 5-2. and two. In the last three weeks, this Notre Dame team has lost 17-14 at home to Ohio State, barely survived at Duke 21-14 while scoring in the final 31 seconds, and then lost last week 33-20 at Louisville. What's your take on, on Notre Dame? Take on Notre Dame is you talk about SC having some pressure going into this game about getting the defense right. There's there's great pressure on Notre Dame going into this game with you know Marcus Freeman. He can't lose three out of his last four games like that. That becomes pressure on him just from a big picture hot seat, bigger than uh, bigger than just this one game or just this one season. Um, so I think the stakes are extremely high for Notre Dame, and I would expect them to come out accordingly with a certain uh, certain level of fire. I think if you follow college football, it feels like Notre Dame's been in playing in prime time three of the past, like in the past three weeks. That's just the, the reality of the situation, um, which I think is unique going into this game because they're going to be used to that dynamic, which I think plays in their favor. But again, I think uh, they are playing with more pressure in terms of the stake of this, of this one game. And that's saying a lot, especially because USC has an undefeated season, but but genuinely, if Notre Dame drops this game, I think uh, you know the tides could very well turn on uh, on, on where uh, where Marcus Freeman's at with that program. But it's a better team than last year. I know it was a good team last year coming into the Coliseum, but um, you know they have a new, new new quarterback in there. His his ability to I feel like last year they were protecting Drew Pine. This year with Sam Hartman, it feels like you know they want to run their offense and they want to you know they want to be explosive in the passing game. But that to me is the crux of this game of you have a offense that has not been playing up to their potential in the Notre Dame offense. They have, they have struggled somewhat the past three weeks versus a defense that by all accounts has not been playing up to their potential in, uh, in USC. So something will have to give in that game. Some narrative will have to go against the grain uh, when Notre Dame's offense is on the field and USC's defense. So, That'll be interesting to see. I think the rain is not insignificant, especially with the high-flying offense like uh, USC. Obviously, as we know, Notre Dame wants to be more physical and lean on the tight ends, which they don't have the elite NFL tight end. I think that's going to be in a next year's draft kind of deal, but that's still a huge part of their offense. So they're a really good team. Um, two tough losses this year, but I think the uh, the narrative surrounding both teams are fascinating, and it's awesome going into a game like this where uh, – you know, it really uh, the stakes are high for both teams. Yeah, it, it really is interesting that um, I don't know that their new OC is on the hot seat yet, but uh, their OC is definitely under the microscope. Uh, Grinch is under the microscope, and one of those two might come out of this feeling a little bit better, a little bit worse this week. We'll go deeper into the matchup, like I said, in the next segment, but let's get a prediction from you, Max. What is your guess on the score for Saturday? 
I think USC's going to come out victorious. I just, uh, I think they're going to channel this negativity around the program uh, to something good. Um, I think there's a reason Notre Dame hasn't scored the way that they have the past few weeks. And if you can't score versus SC, I think that's uh, that's a problem. I think it's going to be a phenomenal college football game. I put it at uh, 31-28 USC. The weather is a little bit of a factor in which why and why it's not a game in the uh, game in the 40s. But I got 31-28 SC. We're very close. I have 35-31 USC. There we go. Very there close. we go. Well, good stuff, Max. We'll be back next week to break it all down. And uh, those listening, stay tuned. we got two more segments coming for you. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, as promised, next on to the show, Tyler James, the publisher of InsideIndieSports.com, our rivals in our Dame site, to give you all the insight on the Fighting Irish ahead of this matchup. Tyler, thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Notre Dame's 5-2, but the last three games have been interesting. Uh, close loss to Ohio State at home, understandable. Close road test at Duke, where they pulled out in the final 31 seconds. And then the 33-20 loss at Louisville. While USC fans are um, apoplectic over the, the defense, I imagine that Notre Dame fans are a little concerned about the offense in South Bend. What's, what's the state of affairs right now? Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty apt comparison. Um, although... Jared Parker is Notre Dame's offensive coordinator in his first year as offensive coordinator, but that doesn't—that hasn't really uh, caused people to hold back in, in wanting uh, some changes to be made potentially. But um, that might be a little bit of an overreaction. But certainly the offense um, and the way it's played has warranted some strong reactions because um, if, if Notre Dame's offense played well against Duke, the game wouldn't have been as tight as it was. If Notre Dame's offense played well against Louisville. Um, they probably would have won that game. And even in the Ohio State game, Notre Dame's offense didn't play poorly, but it only scored 14 points, had some key uh, missed conversions on fourth downs, and wasn't able to, to score as well as it was able to move the ball. And so there's been a lot of uh, a lot of discussion about where Notre Dame's offense is. And um, I think the optimistic Irish fans are hopeful that USC's defense is the uh, – is the elixir for for what ails Notre Dame's offense. One of those two sides is going to feel a a little bit better after this game, I think. We'll see which one it is. But what has been the major culprit in those offensive struggles? Is is there one thing you you point to that has just been consistent those last few weeks? Um, The the passing game is the most consistent in being not where it needs to be. And in part, the last two weeks that's been related to some wide receivers not being fully healthy in the Duke game. Notre Dame was without Jaden Thomas and Jaden Greathouse. It's two leading wide receivers in receptions. Um, although uh, Mitchell Evans has been, has now taken the lead in, re- in, in receptions for the team, Notre Dame's t- number one tight end. And those guys both played against Louisville. Thomas played more than Greathouse, um, but I don't think they looked like themselves quite yet. Um, and so I don't think they were able to provide as much to the offense as, as Notre Dame needs it to. Um, and Notre Dame just doesn't have a lot of talent and depth at the wide receiver position. So when you're without two guys maximizing their abilities at that spot that are that are among the best on the team, Notre Dame's really been in a bad spot because of that. Sam Hartman had to force in some balls where he, where he probably didn't want to or need to against Louisville, and that led to his first three interceptions of the season. 
and uh, that has been a struggle. But the, the running game hasn't been as good. I'm not sure. I tend to think that it has a lot of that has to do with the fact that Notre Dame can't throw the ball and teams just are sort of stacking the box and making it difficult for Notre Dame to um, establish what it wants to on the ground. Um, but obviously that is an issue that needs to get solved too because Notre Dame can't can't really have the success it wants to without being able to run the ball. Because I just don't think the, the passing game is necessarily going to be able to carry it even though Sam Hartman is a very talented quarterback. I want to ask about Hartman. Obviously one of the prizes of the transfer portal, uh, prolific career at Wake Forest. You mentioned that his first three picks came last week, so he's thrown 16 touchdowns, only three interceptions, 1,712 yards. Uh, has he been a noticeable upgrade at the position uh, and maybe just held back by other factors in the offense, or, or has he underwhelmed? Yeah, in terms of being an upgrade, absolutely. I mean, uh, USC fans got to see Drew Pine once again, yeah. um, who was Notre Dame's quarterback last year and is at Arizona State now. Um, and, and Tim Hartman is a significant upgrade over Drew Pine. Um, and then Tyler Buckner was the also Notre Dame starting quarterback for part of last season um, before getting hurt. And then he's transferred to Alabama where he's been able to win the starting job there. Um, so, yeah, Sam Hartman is, is, has been important for Notre Dame's offense. He's done a good job. I think the combination of the lack of Notre Dame's receiver talent and sort of having to do this all on the fly, I mean, he's here for one year, um, makes it a little bit – makes it tougher for him to sort of – get the most out of what he can be as a quarterback. Um, and Notre Dame isn't necessarily asking him to be the sort of same type of quarterback that he was that Wake Forest. Like, Notre Dame's not asking him to throw the ball 40 times a game. And that's that's just not the recipe that Notre Dame wants. Um, and, and Sam Hartman is totally fine with that. Um, so so he, overall, he's been a, definitely a, a, a great addition to Notre Dame's offense. Last week against Louisville, didn't play particularly well for the second consecutive year. He played very poorly against Louisville and at Louisville um, when he was at Wake Forest uh, last year. So so maybe um, on the bright side, it's just a Louisville thing that uh, something that Louisville's defense is doing or playing in that stadium down in Louisville um, has impacted Sam Hartman. Um, but I think particularly Notre Dame getting back at home after playing two tough road games against teams that we're, we're getting after Sam Hartman in terms of rushing the, rushing the quarterback um, will be a, a welcome change of pace for, for Sam Hartman and Notre Dame's offense. He, he was a big play uh, generator the last few years at Wake Forest. You mentioned the situation at receiver. Is, is, there, is there much of a downfield passing attack, or, or, or is that muted for other reasons? Yeah, Tobias Merriweather is the guy that Notre Dame wanted to be its sort of big-time playmaker down the field, and he just not has not played at a very high, consistent level. Um, and so even last week at Louisville with Notre Dame dealing with some wide receiver limitations, his reps have been uh, downgraded at Notre Dame's uh, first passing touchdown of the game last week went to a scholarship lacrosse player in Jordan Faison who came to Notre Dame as a two-sport athlete and walked on to the football team. Um, and then the moment he played in that game, that was the first game he played for the football team. He was he had to be moved over to be a football scholarship player. He's not very big. He's certainly quick. Um, and so I don't know how much of a deep threat he is. They sort of used him in like sort of like a deep over route um, and just sort of got him matched up one-on-one and he ran away from the, the defensive back. So I don't know if they're going to be able to do those kinds of things. Uh, Jaden Greathouse can do a little bit of that. Jaden Thomas 
um, isn't really a burner. They don't have a lot of speed at that wide receiver position. And the guys that do have the most speed are guys like Faison, who's a, a freshman lacrosse player, and Chris Tyree, who is a first-year wide receiver as a senior after playing running back for the last three years. So they're, they're a bit limited there in terms of stretching the field. And certainly that's one of the best aspects in Sam Hartman's game is his ability to throw the, the, throw the ball well downfield and be on target with it. It's also one of the biggest vulnerabilities for this USC defense. So that's an interesting uh, note on the matchup. At running back, Aldrich Estime, uh, very established uh, player there, 692 yards, 6.6 yards per carry, seven touchdowns. But last week held the 20 yards on 10 carries. Do you read much into that, or was that just just a game you kind of wipe away and and, and don't uh, put too much stock in? No, it's it's a serious concern, and he he had the game winning touchdown against Duke uh, the week before, which was a thirty yard touchdown run. Um, but that pushed his total to eighty one yards, so he had fifty yards in the game leading up to that. So he has been limited these last two games on the ground, um, and like I said earlier, is how much of that is because Notre Dame is facing these crowded boxes and they just can't get the room to run with because the passing game is not a threat. Um, but Notre Dame needs to establish him and get him back going in the offense. Uh, Marcus Freeman said it has said it much multiple times this week, um, and feels good about where Audrick is and how he's handled this week after a couple of tough weeks for for the running game. So that that is an important part. Jeremiah Love is the other guy to watch in the backfield. He's been taking on a, a bigger role the last two weeks, and he has tremendous speed as well. Um, and so there's a little bit of a change of pace there. Audrick Estime is not slow necessarily, but he's more of a big bruising back, whereas Jeremiah is a freshman from St. Louis that has a lot of speed that they like to use as a change of pace guy um, and, and has taken on a greater role in the offense in recent, recent weeks. What's the overall evaluation of the offensive line uh, in front of those guys? Yeah, well, left tackle Joel is great. There's no doubt about that. He is the best, arguably, offensive tackle in the country. Um, and uh, he even didn't play well against Louisville. He gave up a sack in which he was literally knocked on his butt. I don't know that I've ever seen Joel have that done to him. Um, and so he needs to bounce back. The right tackle, Blake Fisher, hasn't met expectations. He's a four, former five-star recruit um, who hasn't taken that sort of next step that folks thought he might this season. And then the interior line has really been the weakness of the group so far, starting two guards for the first time, Pat Coogan and Rafa Spindler, um, their first-time starters as juniors. There was even a, a guard rotation last week, which didn't seem to make a lot of sense. I'm not sure if we'll see that again uh, against USC. Marcus Freeman, at least today, said that Notre Dame plans to run out the same starting five on the offensive line. But I think if there's some trouble there, someone's struggling, they won't be afraid to put in Billy Shrouth, who was a sophomore who made his first like meaningful debut um, against uh, Louisville last week, and he even gave up a sack. So um, there's there's some vulnerabilities on that offensive line more than Notre Dame would like to have on a unit that it likes to pride itself in being a strength of the offense. And in the last couple of weeks, particularly, have, they've struggled to both run block and pass protect, and so they have to be on top of their game. They actually played pretty well against Ohio State, which is sort of surprising the way the last two weeks have gone after yeah. a pretty good performance against Ohio State. So the potential is certainly there, um, but for whatever reason, they haven't played up to it the last couple of weeks. Well, flipping to the other side of the ball, uh, a top 15 defense in both 
yards allowed and points allowed. Let's just uh, kind of attack that broadly. Who who has been the standout or the standouts on that Irish defense, and uh, has it been about as expected this year? Yeah, it's been an interesting season for the defense. I think there were high expectations for it. The defense doesn't have a lot of star players necessarily, um, or even like bona fide NFL guys. You're like, this guy's going to be a top pick. The guy that would be at the top of that list is Benjamin Morrison, who was a freshman All-American last season. Um, and has had a pretty good season. He played a big role in Notre Dame. Being able to keep Marvin Harrison Jr. in check when Ohio State came to town. Um, and he's he's a very good player. Kim Hart on the other side has played pretty well at cornerback as well. So the secondary, at least at the cornerback position, has probably been the strength of the defense. Um, the safety position has had its moments. It's been able to make some plays this year, which Notre Dame has, has needed that from the safety position, but it's also allowed um, and, and taken some poor angles on some runs that have allowed some longer runs and some touchdown runs that, that Notre Dame needs to clean up there. The defensive front um, has a lot of guys that aren't necessarily big-time players, but Howard Cross, specifically the third, he's Notre Dame's nose tackle. He's having a great season. He's the team leader in tackles. Uh, which you don't ever see that as a nose tackle. Never. <laughs> um, but but he's, he, he gets after it and penetrates a lot and causes a lot of problems. Um, and he, I remember speaking to him, I think in the spring, just about what it was like going after Caleb Williams. And it was just like the frustration that it caused. Like you get all this penetration and then all of a sudden he keeps running and you just kind of try to keep up with him. So yeah. I'm interested to see how he responds to that challenge this week. Um, and uh, Notre Dame's pass rush needs to be better. Um, it hasn't been able to generate enough sacks, um, and certainly Caleb Williams is going to make it probably hard to to track him down, so that'll be an uh, interesting matchup to watch. That might be the craziest stat I've heard all season, the nose tackle leading in defense and tackles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't hear that You don't hear that often. What what in particular about the matchup with Caleb Williams is, is maybe most concerning for, for the Irish? I think it's the ability, uh, limiting his ability to extend plays, which is like easier said than done, right? Yeah. Um, that's what Caleb Williams did against Notre Dame last year, and he actually ran pretty well. And because and Notre Dame limited him in terms of passing yardage, but um, he was able to run around and scramble and extend plays and, and make things happen. And I think that's what Notre Dame has to figure out: how do you balance? Do you pressure him, but also then give him opportunities to escape? Um, or you just try to keep him in front of him and make him play from the pocket. I mean, I think Caleb Williams is good enough at whatever you're going to try to do, he's probably going to have an answer for. Um, so that's that's what Notre Dame is going to have to sort of have to play a balancing act with. But because Notre Dame has such a good secondary, you kind of trust them to sort of be able to cover for a little bit. But it's when he is, extends those plays where it's like, well, you can only ask those guys to cover for so long. And that's yeah. what Notre Dame has to sort of limit is his ability to extend those plays and, and give his, his wide receivers time to to maybe uh, course correct and get open after being covered early on. And, and that's really maybe been the, the best facet of this offense this year has just been the, the scramble drill plays where he does buy those extra five seconds and keeps right. his eyes downfield and, and they have the playmakers to find the space and turn them into long plays. I'd, I'd say most of their biggest plays this season have come in that regard where kind of off script uh, – It'd be interesting. Um, I don't want to overstate things. Uh, it, it is still very early in his tenure, but how big of a game is this for Marcus Freeman in, in, in the bigger picture? Obviously, it's big for this season, but with with, with the fans, with uh, the trajectory, how big is this week for him? 
Yeah, it's it's very big. I think um, it's tough too because like a, a win would certainly be important, but I don't know that it's necessarily going to quiet a lot of the doubters in Marcus Freeman because they've already lost two games. But I think he really needs the win to sort of calm things down heading into a bye week. I mean, the the, the way Notre Dame's schedule has played out, they were going to play eight games by the middle of October um, and have their first bye week next week, and that's been a long stretch for Notre Dame. This will be Notre Dame's fourth consecutive night game against an undefeated ranked opponent. Um, and so Notre Dame has, has had its hand schedule that it, it put on the table for itself by choosing to play at Ireland in Ireland to open the season. Yeah. Um, and uh, this has been a long run here. So um, Marcus Freeman's in a tough spot to be able to like, to have such like a defining game in such a tough spot is, is not ideal, but I mean, I think it's fascinating to see sort of the way Vegas sees this game and that there's some questions about what USC is able to do. Um, so it seems like it's a winnable game, even though I think maybe on paper with the way Notre Dame has been playing lately, um, that you wouldn't think that. So I, I, it's, I, I think the, per, there's, the questions about Marcus Freeman probably aren't going to be answered whether or not Notre Dame wins or loses this game. Um, it's a lot of to do with like experience um, and decision-making and, and also sort of just coaching hires that he's made, Jared Parker being a, a really a first-time play caller after Notre Dame went, looked into some other offensive coordinators in the offseason, including Utah's Andy Ludwig. Uh, so it, uh, it's definitely a, an important part of this season for Notre Dame. Um, and if, if Notre Dame can get a win here, I think can sort of put things back into a little bit of a norm, more normal state. Um, but I think some of the, the, the nagging questions about what this Notre Dame program is doing and where it's headed um, will likely remain regardless of the outcome on Saturday. Has it really just been the last three weeks that have kind of turned the tide of opinion, or did, did Freeman come into this season with a lot of people kind of questioning things? Um, I think – I think he was sort of given he was given some grace. I mean, the, the start of last season wasn't great. They lost the first two games against Ohio State and Marshall, and then lost to Stanford, who was not good last year. And those three losses during the season were tough. Um, Notre Dame rebounded uh, and got the season back on track, and then obviously the regular season-ending loss at USC, which was a respectable loss. Um, and then the offensive coordinator hiring was just sort of a, a very strange situation. Um, and so that was like, well, are they really – putting Marcus Freeman and this staff in the best position to have success after Tommy Reese left. Um, and you hire Jared Parker, who has a history with Marcus Freeman and was on Notre Dame staff as a tight ends coach. Um, and, and has only been an offensive coordinator once before at West Virginia, but wasn't the true play caller there. So that, that was sort of like a weird moment in the off season. So people were sort of like, well, let's see how this goes. Um, but then the way the season started, everyone's like, well, Jared Parker looks pretty good to me. Notre <laughs> Dame scoring 40 points per game. Even the Ohio State game, while there were some offensive struggles, Notre Dame was competitive in that. But the way it ended with the final two plays um, that Ohio State attempted to score the game-winning touchdown, which they did, Notre Dame has 10 guys on the field. And that's like, wow, that's, that's not a great look for a head coach not yeah. being able to get his guys on the field. And so... From that moment on, it's been like, well, uh, it's been a lot of head-scratching moments. And what what is Notre Dame doing here is for the detractors of Marcus Freeman, wondering if he's in over his head. 
I think it's probably too early to say that. I think you had to know that some of these things were going to happen to a first-time head coach and have some patience with that. His, his best asset beyond being a defensive coordinator was his ability to recruit, and recruiting continues to, to move in a positive direction. And so I think there has to be some patience there. But um, this is Notre Dame. You don't, you don't get a lot of patience if you're not, not winning the games, especially the ones you're expected to win, which Louisville would have counted in that category. I mean, hey, USC six and zero, and Lincoln Riley's not getting a lot of uh, leeway from the fans either. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, just the way it goes. Well, well, good stuff, Tyler. Let's just uh, end with a prediction from you. I, I gave mine in the last segment. I, I picked USC thirty five thirty one. What what is your guess for Saturday? Well, you know what? I think uh, we might be cheating off each other because I had the exact same score <laughs> prediction um, for our. Uh, uh, place your bets the segment that we that we do over at insideindysports.com so I, we we that means we're definitely wrong if we both have the same prediction <laughs> it but, absolutely does <laughs> uh, I, I sort of see it playing out the same way as you i think better dame can do a decent job of keeping usc's offense in check in comparison to what usc's offense normally is but i still think usc will be able to score enough and Notre dame won't be able to quite keep keep pace with with usc in that category Good, good stuff, Tyler. We really appreciate the insight and your time. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Okay, we're going to close the show with a special segment. We're not talking X's and O's. We're not talking USC Notre Dame. We are talking about the great story that the LA Times' Ryan Karchi wrote this week on Lincoln Riley, titled, I Don't Want to Have Regrets. USC's Lincoln Riley tries to balance family and football. Ryan, thanks for joining the show again. Of course, anytime. Take me inside the story from the planning stages first. What, what was the impetus for wanting to explore Lincoln Riley at 40 years old after a, a try and personal year and, and, and to try and get some perspective on that front from him? Yeah, so I was just curious with where he was personally uh, after such a kind of traumatic stretch of his life. I mean, two of these coaches that he was closest to you know, in his career growing up, uh, Dave Nickel and Mike Leach both died within one year of each other. Uh, and I, you know, he's a very stoic guy in general. I, you know, we never really saw any sign of any, you know, personal turmoil while we were covering him during this time. But you know, obviously, he was going through a lot, and I was curious just how that kind of affected, you know, his mode and his thoughts on his future and. You know, he did an interview with a, a journalist, Ben Singer, and sat down and talked about some of these things just in general. And it came up this idea that, you know, he had always thought that he would retire at 50 years old. And that was really interesting to me. And I, I wondered if, you know, any of the last year or so had had really sort of got him thinking about that. And we were able to, to talk to each other about it. And, you know, he really started to open up. You talk about the Dave Nichol and Mike Lee situations, turning 40, thoughts on the NFL, like you said, maybe an expiration date on his coaching career. Coming out of it, what did you feel you learned about him? Um, you know, that's a, an interesting question. I, uh, I guess I learned that he wasn't as singularly focused on football as I thought. Um, obviously, this is you know, a very competitive person. Uh, but... I think in a lot of ways, and I, I forget who it was, and I wish I could give them credit for this, but you know, I saw on Twitter that someone had suggested that maybe Lincoln Riley was 
the first millennial star coach. Mm. Uh, and I thought that was interesting in the sense that, you know, just the connection that people of our age bracket, I guess, gives to their career. And, you know, the people who Lincoln Riley grew up idolizing and coaching, like, these were guys who would coach until they completely ran themselves ragged. I mean, that was just what you did when you were a, a football coach. So, and I think we're starting to see a course correction a little bit. And, it, you know, Riley surprised me in the sense that, kind of like Sean McVay, that, you know, he was really thinking about that. Like, hey, maybe I don't want to do football forever. And that doesn't really jive with his day-to-day sort of, you know, way he carries himself. So I, I thought that was fascinating uh, to find out about him. And, and then to hear that he had talked to Sean McVay, you know, a, a few times about the expectations of coaches and their schedules and, oh, maybe down the line we want to do something different. I mean, you, you start to realize that he's pretty serious about these ideas. And you know, this isn't just sort of lip service. I, I really do think you know, he may only have 10 years left in the profession. I, you know, maybe by that time, society itself will, will be thinking about it differently, too, and what we expect out of these coaches. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I always kind of saw him as a, a guy who cared about his legacy, his place in the history of college football. And maybe that was just me assigning that to him. Um, but with everything he's accomplished in such a short period of time, you, you kind of projected and said, man, he can really put his name uh, up there among a, an interesting list of people. Now, in talking to you, he, he did leave himself an out and say, maybe I will coach till 65, who knows. If you had to guess now, I know this is a totally unfair question, and, but if you had to guess now, how seriously do you think the 50-year-old uh, cutoff thing is or, or what his plan is? I think ultimately it's all going to depend on the situation. You know, if he winds up staying at USC for the next 10 years, uh, he's won a couple national championships, you know, maybe a certain season plays out one way and he's 50, you know, maybe he really starts to think about it then. I think it's going to be more of an in-the-moment thing. And, you know, I, I don't think he put that deadline there to really, like, really thinking, you know, I have 10 years left, I have nine years left, that right. sort of thing. I think, you know, more that by that point, he probably estimates that he'll be, thinking more and more about it and maybe it starts to affect him and how he coaches and i think as soon as he realizes that you know then i wouldn't be surprised to see him leave coaching but i know that is kind of that's kind of uh dancing around giving an actual answer but i do think it'll probably be closer to the 50 year old mark than it would be 60 or beyond that i mean this is the guy who started coaching and he was an assistant coach full-time at Texas Tech at 24. Yeah. So he's already been coaching for 16 years on a Power 5 staff. So he's pretty deep into his career already. And I I guess there is a question about what, you know, levels of football he really wants to coach at. And I think that may determine a lot of, you know, where he's heading. And maybe he ends up in the NFL at some point and the schedule is a little bit more manageable and maybe – he realizes he can coach a couple more years. So there's a lot of room for that timeline to change. Yeah, and he also mentioned in the story, obviously, being in Oklahoma when Bob Stoops stepped down at, what, 56, was it? 
57, I believe. 57. So, so not not quite the same, but but definitely a guy who left years on the table there and and seems to have had no regrets uh, since then. It's very interesting. Like you said, it'll be in the moment. It'll evolve over, over time. Uh, I'm sure everything you covered with him about the last year has really gotten him thinking more about that in, in, in this moment. But who knows what happens over the next five, ten years. I do want to ask about the NFL stuff, though, because it gets brought up all the time. And I always kind of swat it away going, you know, I, I really think this guy cares about his legacy in college football. He's, a, he's proven to be a, a program builder, which is a, a skill set that's not really the same in the NFL. He's got this beautiful home out here in Palos Verdes, uh, long contract. His, his kids are young. I, I just always kind of dismiss the NFL possibility. And I'm surprised he talked about it openly with you, at, at least acknowledging that, quote, the guys in the NFL, their lifestyle is um, a, a lot different in a lot of ways. How serious do you think the NFL is as a potential option in his future? Well, I didn't press him too hard yeah. on that. Um, so, you know, I don't know if he's been able to give a like full round answer on his feelings about that. So I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but you know, that did come up unprompted as we were kind of talking about Sean McVay and, you know, them talking about schedules and, you know, he, he made it pretty clear that he envies that schedule. And we talked a lot about the college schedule and how taxing it is. And, uh, this last two years really, sort of amplified that for him and you know i I don't know i I wouldn't rule it out um i I do think that again it really depends on the situation at at usc and you know how things are ramping up there and you know you look at the roster this year and you think this is probably caleb williams last season you know where does lincoln riley stand without a quarterback uh if he has to move forward without one um so again, the circumstances start to be a big question, and you, you think about Lincoln Riley's reputation right now; it's pretty good. Um, I'm not sure that momentum would last if there were a couple down seasons without Caleb Williams. Um, not to be the case, but you know, there's a chance that in a couple of years from now, his stock to go to the NFL is much lower. So, you know, if he really does want to go to the NFL, there's reason to think he could leave at any time but that's it he's given no indication that that's what he wants to do he seems very happy at usc but i think he's always kind of constantly aware of you know their you know what is better for him and his family you know i can't really fault him for that i guess but i uh i think it would have to be a perfect situation in the nfl i don't think he would step into something where he would be set up to fail um so there's probably only a few things that would really catch his attention right now but you know at one point this was the thing with pete carroll right in the same way uh and for several years as usc was kind of in its glory years carroll kind of flirted with the idea of going to the nfl and just always said that he wanted you know a perfect spot and more control and as soon as this, there were signs of the program kind of turning downward, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, he's with Seattle. <laughs> and the thing people thought he wouldn't do, he did. Uh, so I think there's always potential for that in this situation. But I, I think at the moment, you know, I think Riley would probably prefer to win a national title or, or two maybe even if before he were to make that jump. 
Yeah, it's great points, and, and the Carol example is certainly very pertinent uh, for this audience. Now, I, I know you didn't get into this with him at all, but I'd be very curious what his conversations with his good buddy Cliff Kingsbury have been, uh, who I don't know how he feels about his NFL experience, but it was it was relatively short-lived and uh, not overly successful. Uh, so I wonder what, what that voice in his ear is saying. I was just surprised he broached it. Uh, I thought it was very interesting. I thought the whole story was interesting. My favorite anecdote, though, was this uh, annual summer fishing trip to Cabo San Lucas with his dad, with yes. De- Dennis Simmons, director of football operations, Clark Stroud, and the nugget that Lincoln is in charge of the playlist for the weekend. Apparently is like the dictator of the playlist. <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, this is not a... This is not just you 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 know request whatever and he plays it. It's you know you have to it has to pass muster with Lincoln. So he uh, as you might expect, given how he runs his football program, his uh, vacation playlist is the same. So I which I can admi- I admire honestly. I would probably be the same with the vacation playlist. No, it's 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 fascinating and it does really speak to a guy who's just used to having everything in his life and his day and his week regimented. I go on vacation, I'm out with friends, I'm playing whatever's in my head in the moment. I'm not planning it out weeks, months in advance and, and uh, evaluating submissions. So very interesting approach there. I, I could have read the whole sidebar on just the playlist uh, process, but perhaps another, another... I'm not ruling out that may exist in the future. Yes. <laughs> so I'll, I'll give it a tease for a later read. Very good. Well, I wanted to have you on just for this quick segment just to, to promote your story and talk about it because it was a really interesting uh, perspective into Lincoln Riley. We'll certainly have you on back again to talk other matters, but great job on the story and thanks for your time. Absolutely, man. Anytime. Good stuff, good stuff. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you to Max Brown. Thank you to Tyler James. Thank you to Ryan Karchi. Thank you for listening to the Trojan Talk podcast. I am en route to South Bend, Indiana via Detroit this time, not the usual Chicago route. We will be in South Bend for the game Saturday, obviously, all the post-game coverage to come. Follow us on Trojansports.com for everything, and we'll get back on the podcast next week. Thank you.